Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Eugene Cohn, Chair-Elect of the AUA Residents and Fellows Committee, and I'd like to welcome you to the third podcast in an ongoing series for residents and young urologists. Today's episode features a panel discussion presented at the AUA 2018 Residents Forum about the evolving practice of urology. The panelists are Dr. Eugene Rhee, Regional Chair of Urology for Kaiser Permanente Southern California, Co-Chair of the AUA Committee on Telemedicine, and Chair of the Western Section Health Policy Committee, Dr. Chad Elamoodle of the University of Michigan, where he is the Director of their Telemedicine Program, and Dr. Granham Sunt of Tufts University, who has also served as the Head of Medical Affairs at Sanofi and Genzyme. So I, I want to, I'll start off and be this uh, leadoff batter here. Uh, I'll come up to you all, because it's always in the back of the room. Uh, my name is Eugene Rhee. I'm the uh, National Chair of Urology for Kaiser Permanente, the largest healthcare organization outside the VA. Um, uh, it gives me great pleasure to come here to spend some time with you to talk about the evolving practice of medicine and urology, particularly the business side. Some of my perspectives. I appreciate Dr. Koo and the Young Urologist Committee at the AUA for this opportunity to really engage with you. What's different about this than it ever was when I was a resident way back in, I uh, don't remember, but uh, it's been a long time. And we didn't have these opportunities to talk to you all in this kind of forum and setting. There was no Young Urologist Committee that really gave us this kind of forum. So it's, it's a very unique event, and I really am encouraged by the amount of people who are here who are bright-eyed and ready to go in urology. So welcome. Uh, let's go to the first slide. So, do you have a click clicker? It's up there? Okay, so sketching the life after training, perspectives on the business side of urology. This is, uh, uh, I promise I'll be short. Thanks. So job security is obvious. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at healthcare, it's recession proof. Think about it, no matter what, healthcare people, it, uh, there is always a demand as far as that's concerned. And you'll see that with the recession curves, no matter what, other jobs suffer, but in our industry of healthcare, this is a very robust sector in the United, in the United States. Well, the AUA census is just out, so I encourage you to kind of look at it. I dug into this. Uh, I'm on that committee for the census, and you'll find some really interesting things that are very pertinent to you all. First off, 62% of the counties in the United States, take this to the bank, do not have a urologist in the United States. So if you took a map, this is the heat map, okay? The gray is zero. So where did we all go? Southern California, as you can see here, but also up in the Northeast and in Florida. You can, it, this is a very important graphic for you to understand because this is opportunity, okay, to understand where it is about the evolving practice of medicine and urology. You hear a lot about GME funding that we work out uh, in regards to, you need more residents, we need more fellows. But the problem is, is that none of you want to go in the middle. Everybody wants to go to the outside, to the coast, right? So, you know, that's not really the answer. So there's opportunity, how do we deliver care? You'll hear about that uh, with our colleagues in, on, on our panel. Number of practicing urologists, can you believe this? 12,000, okay, are, that's all we have for the 300 odd million US 
citizens' lives in the United States, 10,000 are actually really practicing. Okay? Look how old we are. 52% of the urologists are over the age of 55. So we're an older specialty. Okay? And it clearly, um, th those are some clear numbers to kind of understand about where you're, what job market you're enter, entering into. So you're at the line, congratulations. Here's what I always say to folks is there's two elements. Uh, you've heard some uh, discussion about physician wellness uh, by Debbie Leitner and the group uh, with Amanda North. Uh, rule changes and lifestyle changes, I wanna kind of concentrate on those two things. And what do I mean by that? Role changes are, instead of being the received mode, of being a student, you're now a clinician. Instead of being the bread eater, you're a breadwinner. Life on hold is now life on the go. Okay, so you kind of, you go from no business to you better know some business. Uh, you go from an internal focus of lectures, so, so to speak, and research. We heard some people winning some things in research here, but now you're going to more an external focus with employers, patient care, malpractice, even your own personal life, okay? And then the obligation, for, as you heard from yourself, uh, is important, but you are all now, I always say this to my fellows, is that once you get into practice, that's it. I encourage you to go on to a nice, fantastic trip before you start your job, because once you start your job, that is it. You're you have an obligation to your practice. Now, lifestyle changes, you follow an academic curriculum to creating your own life and practicing curriculum. Yeah, you go from the academic environment of advisors, okay, to having to assemble your own team. And we'll talk, that, that's what I really wanted to talk to you about. And then having an academic system that determines whether you pass or fail, okay, that's what you all kind of have experienced. Now having a life filled with ups and downs, okay? And as well, having others approve of you and your work, that's the old school way, but now you're moving on to determining your own happiness, worth, and legacy. This is about physician resiliency, something you heard about earlier today. So preparing for those role and lifestyle changes is about creating structure and safety and certainty, okay, by this alliance. And what I mean by that is family comes first, no doubt about it. Mentorship, quick second, colleagues, your financial structure, and also your involvement in professional organizations, okay, whether that be local or that be regional or that be national. The urology practice today, so where do you fit? So how do you go with from your professional goals? Uh, how does that fit with your personality traits? You have to know who you are. If you don't know who you are, you really are going to be in a situation with a 2.7 years where you're looking for another job, okay? So, a little bit about the environment, the self-employed physician, all right, versus the employed physician. Are the scales tipping, okay? And they are, as I showed you some of that data. So there are some big changes in healthcare. Who are, and so we, in the old days, we used to be the traditional beneficiaries of how we build and got our uh, reimbursement. Now that's all changed in terms of, we, they're now targeting us meaning healthcare delivery models and systems to control costs, okay? Salaried physicians, traditionally, if you're going into an employee model, 
um, have been the lower costs. There have been a lot of tremendous political and economic pressures for solo practice. Anybody here thinking about solo practice or joining a solo practice, by the way? So this is kind of an interesting change that we've seen. Employment status, 55%, the middle row, I am employed by others. More than half are employees. And this is moving forward and rising. Now you'll hear some opportunities about what are some of the opportunities as an entrepreneur um, in urology, but this is really what is going on right now. And most of your young, younger, are, are employed. Okay, that's what this is. All right, clearly. So U.S. healthcare. So is this something that really is pertinent to you and what you do? Uh, very much so. Gene Sebelius is the secretary who passed the Affordable Care Act with uh, President Obama. Because of this slide you've seen, but it's about how much we spend in the United States on our G gross domestic product, GDP, and you can tell that the U.S. is way up higher than any other country, yet we're the 15th in terms of mortal infant mortality, a surrogate market to the quality of health care that we deliver. So this is really about how do we control costs and then what the legislation has created. So the keys to the U.S. health care, this is our present state of fragmented care, where the hospitals control a lot of the issues in regards to how people get paid, how healthcare is delivered, where the patient comes in, the patient is not in the middle of this care, okay? It's the hospital who delivers and doles out, whether it's the bricks and mortar or the devices or whatnot. So this is where we're moving, trying to move to, is a patient-centric care, where you have Everybody around that patient, this is where the bundled model comes into play, where you hear about this as a reimbursement model that you all will be front and center with in, your, in, terms, of the, in terms of reimbursement. The market change will take many forms, okay? So the, what's going on with the design of the Affordable Care Act is that you've got the fee-for-service traditional model that's just volume, and now it's going into the value-based system which is essentially the bundled care, looking at quality outcomes. The Aqua database you hear a lot about are things that we have to, uh, as an opportunity for practices to try to be involved in to show quality. So these are kind of an evolution of the future of healthcare. Whether or not you're gonna be a private practice, solo, or in a big, large group practice, we're all gonna be part of this. So this reimbursement model, this is a very nice slide to, to really show you that this is happening now. This is law. So the way you get paid is very complicated. I know this looks very complicated, and it is. And practices aren't so equipped, equipped right now to really understand how to get incentive payments the way this is structured. But the whole point of this is to, they have to develop operationally things in their practice to show quality to get these payments as they move forward. As you can tell, there are gonna be penalties. There are penalties associated with these things if you don't, if you don't really catch up to this kind of uh, timeline. So the seven steps to developing, these are, these, are, these are models in terms of how you develop as a group. I think if physicians were no different than any other human being, uh, group of human beings, and physicians are the worst in regards to working together as a group. I should know, because I manage a lot of them. 
but it's, it's very important that you find groups that are very engaged, have a culture, strong leadership, moving up to really, you know, some vision that really enhances the structure that they put into place in wherever environment you're in. So this is healthcare reform. The goal is to increase value, just like I said. There's a lot of different tactics, the pillars, if you look on that slide. The bottom line is that's where the EMR system, the electronic health records, that's why they forced it upon us. Okay, regardless of whether you like it or not, the only way that the electronic record works for us is in regards to enhancing these tactics to really the ultimate goal of value. Okay, for example, in the value-based purchasing, uh, you know, tr keeping track of things that you're ordering, and that's actually captured through the electronic record, which then is about improving quality. Those are the things that we're measuring. So understand the role and lifestyle changes that are going to occur for you. Find the right environment that will recreate that safety and structure of certainty, knowing who you are, and then creating a life after training alliance, your team. Because the team, you didn't have a choice before. You had a junior resident, you had the chief resident, you had attendings, but that was, you didn't have a choice about that. Now you do, in some ways. And so you have control over that. It's a new, it's a new way of looking at how your life is during practice. Peace comes from within. It has to come from what you are. Do not seek with it without it. So you must actually understand this kind of thing from Buddha, which I, I, I think that most people who are very successful know who high degree of emotional intelligence, know who they are, and they know that they're able to fit into a group. So with that in mind, I'm done here, and I'll let, this, uh, I'll let Chad take it over from here. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. And uh, thanks, Kevin, and the folks in the resident committee for allowing me to talk about this topic that I'm very passionate about and um, that I have, I have no doubt that telehealth technology is going to be an important part of your care delivery over the next uh, five to ten years. Um, and so it's really hard in eight to ten minutes to kind of give the entire landscape on the reimbursement and regulatory issues around telehealth so really at the end of this talk uh, the two take-home messages that I want you to have is number one is just kind of understand what telehealth is and then number two is to start to get your gear spinning about how this can impact your practice uh, moving forward so my name is Chad Moodle, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Michigan, I'm also director of our telemedicine program, and then also involved in University of Michigan's broader strategy for telehealth expansion. All right. Okay. And so, uh, as everyone, everyone knows, uh, urology is very familiar with the use of disruptive technology to advance urologic care. We, have, we operate with robots, we use lasers for surgery, and one area that's really been untouched by technology, uh, but is the area where we actually spend most of our care is actually in the outpatient care setting. So why, why is there a need for us to use technology in this setting? So 
to illustrate, I'll give you an example. So Susan is a hypothetical but very common patient of mine, and if you go into general urology, it would be a very common patient of yours as well. She's 55 years old. She's an elementary school teacher. Uh, she has a condition which causes her to have recurrent kidney stones, and so every six months I see her for stone surveillance and for post-operative visits. Susan lives in Saginaw, Michigan, and so when she comes to see me like she did in August of 2017, um, she traveled to Ann Arbor, and that trip round, trick, round trip took her two and a half hours. And so with every institution, this is going to vary, but she spent about 60 minutes in non-clinical time, which includes the time that she spent waiting to see me, the time that she spent waiting in line to check in. And all in all, for that visit on August 28, 2017, she spent three and a half hours for a 15-minute consultation with me. Telehealth has the potential to radically change care for patients like Susan. And so everyone in this room is involved in some sort of telehealth at some point. Broadly defined, it's essentially the remote delivery of healthcare services and clinical information using telecommunications technology, which includes the phone, internet, email, video, and mobile apps. And so, Telehealth has been around for decades, but what's really changing now is that the payers are starting to get an interest in this, and some telehealth services are actually now being reimbursed, which is really the big game changer. So by integrating telehealth into clinical care, there's potential benefits for all stakeholders, and this is why people are really interested in this. So for Susan, it saves her three and a half hours, 174 miles, and she's able to teach her class that day. Then for Michigan Medicine, my, my hospital, uh, with faster patient turnover with these more efficient video visits, um, she, it's, we can improve access for new patients. And then for Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is the major payer in the state of Michigan that started covering for video visits from home, better compliance means that there's fewer emergency room visits for stones. And so across the country, this is the evolving practice of medicine, telehealth is growing rapidly. There's been a 20% annual growth in the global telemedicine market. Uh, about 50% of healthcare executives, whether or not they're using it in urology, 50% of healthcare executives use some form of telehealth at their, at their health systems. And there's, this is one of the few areas in healthcare where there's actually a lot of bipartisan support. There's 30 bipartisan bills in Congress that address some form of telehealth expansion, whether it's the VA or within alternative payment models at this point. And the, one of the uh, most advanced bills right now is called Connect for Health has 30 co-sponsors, 17 which are Demo Democratic and uh, um, the rest which are uh, Republican. And then health systems are growing. In, two, in, two, in, in the last 12 months, there's been 2,000 telehealth encounters at, the, at, at Michigan Medicine. So to understand what telehealth is, there's a lot of different terms that you'll hear, but really almost all telehealth technologies can fit into this framework. And there's two broad categories. So the first is whether or not it's happening real time. So is it a synchronous visit? Or is it asynchronous, where the information is stored and then, uh, and then addressed later? And then the second category is who the end user is. Is the end user, is it provider to provider, or is it from provider to patient? So within this framework, you can really fit most telehealth technologies, including e-consults, where a primary care doctor asks a specialist a question, and then the specialist replies. And this isn't through email, this is through uh, a platform that allows both parties to get reimbursed. So that's how it's different from the previous practice in medicine. And so uh, the other really interesting thing and probably one of the most exciting things for me is how we can actually engage artificial intelligence to, to run and drive some of these platforms. 
And so to give you two concrete examples, I'll talk about uh, two different types of telehealth services that we're using at Michigan Medicine. Uh, the first is the video visit, and then the second is uh, a technology called a chatbot. And so the video visit, like I mentioned with Susan's example, so with, at video visits at Michigan Medicine, um, there's a few providers over there that have virtual clinics where patients have an app, and it's the portal app, so it's the same app that they're using to get their lab results and imaging results. Um, they can connect using their smartphones from home to our clinics, and this is a, a picture of our clinic setting where we have a desktop computer and an iPad, and uh, the patient's face essentially appears on that iPad, and I can still go through their records at the same time. Um, the use cases in urology, so we're using it for metabolic stone follow-up, uh, post-endoscopic surgery, medication management. There's really an endless number of use cases for urology and other specialties. A video visit can essentially be used for any condition that doesn't require uh, a physical exam. And so I'll talk briefly about another exciting uh, telehealth service that we're using, chatbots. So a chatbot is essentially a computer program that automatically conducts a conversation through text message. So it conducts human-like conversations um, automatically. And so why are we using it? Well, you know, patients often get concerned about normal symptoms after surgery, like hematuria, dysuria. And I'm sure you guys know that they'll call residents um, at the most inopportune time, nursing staff. And then one out of 10 of them will eventually go to the ED. And so this is a, a pilot that we're doing where we, we have and built um, a post-ureteroscopy chatbot. And you can actually, if you're interested, text that number and see how it works. But essentially, we give um, patients a card, and then um, they're able to go through decision trees and essentially um, um, go through the process of things that they would normally ask our nurses. And so why is this better than the stack of discharge papers that they normally get? Well, you can actually build more content into it without uh, without greater length, we can, we're using the hematuria grading scale there. You can build empathy. Um, you can present information to the patient at the right time using a logical sequence. And you, know, you could run this uh, using um, artificial intelligence as well. And so my last piece of advice is that, so when, once you go out and start your practice, I think there's three things that you should think about. One is to search for problems. And you can never search for problems just using anecdotal data. You have to actually examine your own data, whether you're looking at your RVUs, wait times, access. And then most importantly, understand your patient's experience with care, see what their pain points are, and then try to innovate in those pain points. And think of technology solutions that have high impact problems that are easy to use, and also have a business case, because if, if you don't have those three pillars, then the technology solution is not going to take off. And then finally, be an entrepreneur. So an entrepreneur is essentially working within an organization to, um, to improve care. And finally, I'll leave you with this quote from Tim Cook. So technology is capable of doing great things, but it doesn't want to do great things. It doesn't want anything. That part takes all of us. Great stuff, all millennial stuff, fancy computer stuff. So, you know, you just look at my hair and you could date me. And as Dr. Enseo came up to receive that award, it reminded me that her dad and I sat for boards together many, many years ago. So it's a small world indeed. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's been an outstanding session, and I think the record attended. So things are moving for the residence forum. What I'm going to talk today about is something that we don't usually talk about at conferences like this. 
and that is other non-clinical career opportunities and pathways for urologists, young, middle-aged, older, academic, private practice. And I hope in the next few minutes to not only open a light on this issue, but also maybe to sow the seeds in some of your minds that pharma and industry might be a career worth considering. Here are my disclosures, and I'm glad that over the years we have moved from titling these slides Conflict of Interest, and we just call it what it is. It's just a disclosure. There's no such thing as a confluence of interest, a conflict of interest. That's a pejorative term. And Professor Butt yesterday, if you were the Raymond Guterres lecture, when he put up his disclosures, he's a professor at UCSF, but he's also an entrepreneur, started multiple companies. He says it's a congruence or confluence of interests rather than conflict of interest. Now, uh, you guys approach completion of your residencies, fellowships. Usually you consider either staying in the academy, become an academic urologist at a teaching institution, or you consider private practice. Years ago it was usually solo practice. However, over the last 15 to 20 years, it's evolved into large group practice, the LOGPA groups. It's even evolving into mega LOGPA. Some of the LOGPA groups have over 100 urologists in a single group. They've become so big and financially complicated, a large LOGPA group in the Northeast was purchased recently by a, by a private equity company. So the practice of urology, particularly in the private arena, has changed, it's evolved, and it's become very, very complicated, and it's run, and it's meant to be run as businesses with financial imperatives. So practice is changing. 60% of the urologists in last year's AUA survey are in private practice. There are 12,517 urologists who participated in the census. However, pressures in the private arena, pressures in the academic arena to get grants, you get on that cycle, you got to keep applying monies from the NIH and funding agencies have trended downwards in real dollars. So over the last maybe 10 years, many urologists have started looking and exploring non-clinical uh, career opportunities. As uh, Kevin said in the introduction, um, I've been fortunate enough to live and work in each of these three buckets. In academia, we had a private practice group within the university at Tufts, and then I spent about 10 years in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. I was fortunate enough to launch four urological drugs. The first drug for the treatment 
to sh demonstrate a survival benefit in metastatic prostate cancer, uh, docetaxel or taxotere. I also launched cabazitaxel, Jeftana, advanced metastatic cancer. Launched a drug called Eligard, one of the old LHRH drugs, injectable. And I also launched a BPH drug, uh, Uroxetrol. It was an alpha blocker, alfusosin, that competed with tamsulosin or Flomax. So I've lived in all of these world, worlds, and over the years, I've developed uh, an interest in just bringing this message forward to uh, urologists that there is life beyond academia and private practice. Now, you've heard this morning about burnout, major issue among urologists. Somewhere between 40, 50% of urologists turn up positive on that uh, questionnaire. There are challenges with reimbursements, problems with the electronic medical records. You, you spend hours a day just completing your tasks at the end of the day. That has led to the emergence of another type of physician extender, a medical scribe. Many offices, many academic institutions have a medical scribe who transcribes, does the inputting of the data while the physician is interviewing and examining the patients. And then finally, you guys, are the millennial generation, you're characterized by certain attributes and behaviors and expectations that are different to the Generation Xs, different to the baby boomers. You guys value and insist on a better quality of life, a better work-life balance. You insist on immediate feedback. You're experts in the social media arena. The average millennial sends at least 50 texts per day. So you guys are in that generation. And finally, that millennial group is the most ethnically diverse group in the US. Just by a show of hands, how many of you in the audience are first, second generation immigrants or have at least one parent who is an immigrant? Yeah, so 20%. And the millennials now compose or will in 2020 account for 50% of the workforce. So the AUA has started to address that. And then recently, uh, LACPA, they started a young LACPA group within LACPA. They surveyed the urologists in the LACPA groups, and there were close to 400 uh, individuals who were millennial and they have certain interests. They're demanding transparency, financial and otherwise, within the practices. They're demanding leadership training. They're demanding training in financial planning. And they're demanding mentoring and coaching, as was previously mentioned. So what are the jobs available in the non-clinical arena? This is a hodgepodge of a list. You could go work for the government, the FDA, you could go into the private sector, work as a medical advisor to hedge funds, 
uh, venture capital uh, companies. And if you're brave enough and smart enough, and you've developed uh, uh, devices like we heard with the Eurolift device or have um, uh, drug patents, you're brave enough, form your own company. There's a new group, a small eclectic group of Euro entrepreneurs who just in the last 10 years have become multi-millionaires and one multi-billionaire. You're familiar with Provenge, the first human vaccine approved by the FDA for any tumor type. That company was started and led by a urologist. You've heard of Abiraterone, Zytiga. That company was started by a urologist. And it, at least two other urologists I know who are CEOs of companies right now developing urology and immuno-oncology products. So if you're brave enough, go for it. And then there are opportunities with CROs, contract research organizations, opportunities with the foundations. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation hires a lot of physicians uh, to work full-time. And then most of the jobs, though, are within the pharmaceutical and biotech arena. And why is the demand for urologists to come into pharma and biotech and devices so high? Just some numbers here. In the last 20 years, there have been over 25 drugs approved for genital urinary cancers. We've had a host of prostate cancer drugs. Uh, I think Dr. Mozzarello showed us a list of 10 or 15 drugs approved for prostate cancer. Currently, there are 126 drugs in various stages, stages of development. Most uh, for prostate, kidney is second, and in the last uh, four to five years, the number of studies on drugs being evaluated for urothelial cancer has uh, exploded because of all the immuno-oncology approaches, uh, checkpoint inhibitors. There are four or five drugs already approved for advanced and metastatic, metastatic urothelial cancers. So, a lot of stuff going on in urology, not to mention the device companies or the diagnostic companies. And they die to get urologists in. And why is that? Urologists come not only with scientific and medical knowledge, but most come with significant uh, clinical experience. You have spoken to patients. You know what it is like in the real world. You have business skills. You have entrepreneurial skills. You're custom working with a team. You know, in the operating room, it's a team approach. With the robotics, it's a team approach. So the industry likes those soft skills because they get it for free when they hire you. Um, you're custom problem solving. You're custom thinking strategically. Trying to market your practice, if you're in the private practice trying to market your academic institution to attract residents like you. So marketing, urologists are very entrepreneurial and marketing-minded 
for different reasons, the different groups. So if any one of you just has a passing thought that hey, you might want to explore opportunities within industry, I'll give you some advice. My first advice would be uh, to talk to people around you. No, you're not telling them you're leaving the practice or you're leaving the university. Just say, oh, you're exploring, you know? You're thinking you want to see what's on the other side. So network, network, and network. At meetings like this, when you go around the exhibit hall, speak to the individuals at the booth. They will tell you what studies are going on. They will tell you, oh my God, we need a urologist. So spread the word that you're thinking about it. Not that you have decided to transition, but you're thinking about it. Continue with your clinical practice, obviously. The more clinical practice, the more surgical practice you have under your belt, the higher the premium for recruitment on the sign-on bonuses and things like that. If you have the opportunity, participate in ongoing clinical trials. All these trials are done at academic institutions and in pri private practice urology. So clinical trials, if possible, advisory boards, if possible. But finally, and my last word of advice is, apart from networking, identify a urologist who is already within the industry and work with him or her to be your mentor and sponsor. So I started off asking the question, are there opportunities, non-clinical opportunities, available for urologists and physicians? I rest my case. Thank you. Special thanks to Drs. Ree, Elamudal, and Sunt, and to the AUA Residents and Fellows Committee for organizing the forum. For more information about our committee or getting involved in the AUA as a resident or young urologist, you can visit us on the AUA website at auanet.org.